If you turn to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel 7, and just a few verses tonight, verses 8 through 12. And I want to focus in on this one that's called the little horn. And that's primarily because of what's ultimately going to be made known to us through the revelation that John will write that we call the book of Revelation. Um, Additionally, uh, what Daniel writes, uh, not only here in chapter 7, but also in chapter 9 and chapter 11, this very pivotal figure uh, that the Apostle John will actually write about in 1 John, and the Apostle Paul will write about in 1 Thessalonians. And he has a lot of different names And he has a title, and that title we know and most commonly use is the Antichrist. And again, the reason I think this is so important that we establish this now is this world leader is going to be the central focus of a period that Daniel's going to describe in chapter 9 as this 70th week, this time that The Bible reminds us is the time of Jacob's trouble. It's called the Great Tribulation or the Tribulation of Days. It's this time that Joel described in Joel, in in the entirety really of his book, but specifically in chapters 2 and 3, when he makes mention of this time where there's going to be a world ruler that's going to come on the scene. That world ruler is going to solve essentially the world's problems, at least for a period of time. So he's a very pivotal figure in the prophetic writings that we have that we would call the apocalyptic writings that are in the Bible, the the apocalyptic prophecies. And we get a glimpse here, and we'll go back to verse 8 before moving on, but in verse 8 it says, and I was considering the horns. Remember that these horns uh, very clearly are kings and kingdoms, uh, the ten And there was another horn, a little one, coming up from among them, before whom the three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking with pompous words. And so let's pray. Let's dig into this whole concept, and we'll look at some additional passages tonight. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks of things that are future. Lord, as we look back, we also know that you've been true to all that you've said in the past, and we have no reason to believe that you're not going to be true uh, as we move forward in history. And so this world leader that will come on the scene, the one that we call the Antichrist, we ask that you would reveal, Lord, things about him tonight so that we can look at our world and really begin to discern the times, the seasons that we live in. Lord, help us to not become uh, fearful, but just simply aware. Instruct your church tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as you saw last week, this book is a flash. This particular chapter is a flashback. It takes us back to a time 25 years earlier. Uh, Daniel would have been in his 50s. And so chronologically, you can kind of put this between chapter 4 and 5. And this is also going to, as we end chapter 7, it will end the Aramaic section or the part that was written 
uh, specifically for the people that were in captivity in Babylon. And so the remainder will be written looking forward into the future. As we left off last time with that fourth beast that we saw, this this revived Roman Empire, uh, or what you might call the remnant of Romanism. And if you study your history, uh, the Roman Empire was the longest surviving empire in human history. It began in roughly B.C. 30 and continued really to have power all the way until the early 1400s. And so it lasted almost for 1,500 years. And so you have this, this Romanism, if you would like, that still is remnant, of course, because the, the Roman state religion under Constantine became the Roman Catholic Church. And then that also has a certain amount of political power, which is still wielded all over the globe. And if you don't think the Roman Catholic Church has power, just ask any of the, any of the countries where Roman Catholicism actually is the predominant religion. I happen to have spent a ton of time in Brazil, which is about 68% Catholic. The Roman Catholic Church really controls an awful lot of what happens politically. And so the bishops, the cardinals, those in the Roman Catholic Church actually wield some political power. And so I do believe that at least in some way there is going to be an attachment because one of the things that will happen in the very last days is you're going to have the, the amalgamation, if you will, of the three basic things that are needed for a human government. You have to have a monetary system. You have to have a language. You have to have a religion. And you have to have a government itself. And this little horn that rises up is going to somehow be able to pull that one feet off, which right now nobody's been able to do. There is no world ruler that you could say has ever wielded that kind of power. And we're going to take a look at the one example that liberal commentators will say, well, the, the Antichrist, if there was one, was this man, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Uh, and so we're looking tonight at who this person is that's going to come out of this 10-nation confederacy of the last days that is going to be both an intellectual genius and he's going to possess oratorical skills like we haven't seen before. Uh, And no, it's not our president. That's it's usually, it's either Putin or the president. That's the two people that are all, you know, it's always whoever governs Russia or whoever's governing the United States. That's the two things that people joke about. They make, you know, they write books about. But it's really clear as we begin to see this, this person unveiled that they're going to be extremely skilled in political speech. They're going to have the capacity to put together a peace treaty with Israel and Russia. Uh, they are going to command the world's attention, and they're also going to be patently anti-Christ. They're going to be against the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they're going to be apparently during the first three and a half years of what we call the tribulation, very religious, at least in the sense that they're inclusive of all religions. And so we we begin to see this picture unfold uh, tonight uh, as we look at this one little horn that's come out of the four. He speaks boastfully. Uh, He blasphemes God. He speaks against God. And if you would, if you turn to 1 John and turn to chapter 2, I want to look at a couple of passages tonight just to give you the, the understanding of where you might find these things because I think it's important for us to remember that Scripture comments on Scripture. The best commentary that you possess on the Bible is the Bible itself. 
And so as you understand, read and study the word of God, the word of God often reveals the, the proper interpretation of other passages itself. One of the reasons that we know that uh, one of the internal evidences is what we call it, that scripture is authored by God, it has to be outside of space and time, is its accuracy, that it begins to pull together things that no one could have possibly known, especially people that lived, in the case of the prophets, over a time span of almost 1,500 years. And so in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18, it says, little children, it is the last hour. And again, last hour, last day are often very associated. Uh, in this case, they are directly so. It is in the last hour. It is the last hour. As you have heard, now notice it says, as you have heard. That means it has been said before. That means someone told you about it. The Antichrist is coming. In some translations, you may not have the word the, but it just simply says Antichrist is coming. And so the, those that translated the Bible originally left it out in the King James and put it in the New King James because it is a definite article. It, it's describing the noun that's going to come after it. It is one is the only Antichrist is coming. And even now, many antichrists have come. And there's the picture that helps you understand that they're talking about exactly one person. Because those other antichrists could be people like Antiochus Epiphanes IV. They, they could be, you might say Hitler was a type of antichrist. You could say Pol Pot was a type of antichrist. You could have easily said that most of the Caesars were a type of the antichrist. Pervasive oratorical skills able to pull together people of all different cultures able to command a religion and having control over the world's monetary systems at the time but the problem is this particular person is described as having more control than anyone who's ever existed in the course of human history and so this begins to unfold before us as we read this even now many antichrists have come and by which we know that, look at it, this is the last hour. That they went out from us, but they were not of us. And speaking of that spirit that has existed in the world uh, for, for most of the time that man's been on this earth. And so it begins to talk about what that looks like in a person's life. Someone who is a liar and someone who denies Jesus Christ. And so there's some attributes, if you will, that are assigned in that passage. You can read the rest of it later to the Antichrist himself. Now you can turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians 2. In case you want to see them, there they are for you. I want to look at these. He's not always called the same thing. He's not always described as the Antichrist or the spirit of Antichrist or Antichrist as a singular word. Sometimes he's called the man of lawlessness. But when you begin to look at the characteristics described in these passages, you're going to find out it's the same person. Verses 3 and 4. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day. In that day the last hour the end of man's sojourn the end of the age of grace the very last days the day of the lord the day of the wrath of god all of these statements 
are pointing us towards the very end of the age of grace, the time when God's going to finally say, enough, Satan, you've had your rule, you've had your reign, your time is now condensed down to a singular seven-year period, which we'll see in chapter 9. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And so here it says that this same person is going to be revealed, the man doomed to destruction. We're going to see that he's actually doomed to destruction along with Satan himself and will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. And we'll look at some companion passages in the book of Revelation to see if this is not also the beast. If this isn't this final world ruler that literally puts his own image up, and we don't know whether it's going to be over the internet or some fantastic way that doesn't even yet exist, but will demand to be worshipped. Turn to Revelation chapter 13 now, if you would. Verse 4. And here he's called the beast. And so they worshipped the dragon. The dragon is Satan himself. The Apostle John in his revelation from the Lord as he's imprisoned there on the island of Patmos. There as he lives out his, his life to a ripe old age exceeding 90. They worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast. What did Paul say to the church at Thessalonica? that he demanded to be worshipped, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Now remember what verse 8 said here in chapter 7. And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months, three and a half years, And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. Mark that phrase. Because during the reign of the Antichrist, if you are not a tribulation saint, someone who loses their life for even professing Christ, the only place that you're going to find believers is in heaven other than the 144,000 that are the Jews that have been converted and now they they are these incredible evangelists, but as they are met, uh, they also are going to lose their life. And so the Bible gives us lots of reference and information about this one world ruler. Uh, Now, people will always say, well, that's, you know, it's really pessimistic. I don't want to think on that. It's not pessimistic if you come to know Jesus Christ right here, right now, tonight. Because you're going to get to skip all this stuff. You won't be here when this man rises to power. You're not going to be around to see him do these things. You will be coming back, though, to make sure he gets thrown into the pit. So it's not a hopeless situation unless you have not yet trusted Jesus Christ as your own personal Lord and Savior. But the forecast for the future, as you look at it with regard to human history, is pretty much what we see in our world. Amen? It's fairly bleak. It is not a peace-loving world that's moving towards 
you know, a greater and greater sensibility towards the value of mankind. We are, in fact, moving the opposite direction. Now, people disagree with that statement. They'll say, oh, well, we're way better off. Now, we are better off financially, but we have figured out greater and greater ways to wipe out larger and larger pieces of humanity. We still have not solved the basic problem. What are the basic problems that mankind faces? Man needs water. Amen? Man needs food. Amen? And man needs shelter over his head from the elements. Amen? Can I tell you, those are the three greatest problems we still face in the world today. For all of our technology, we have more people in poverty, we have more people starving, we have more people without clean drinking water, and we have more people without proper shelter than ever before. So if somebody tells you the world's getting better, they're quite simply just foolish. The world is not getting better. We are getting craftier, and there is a larger group of people who have more than other people, but the vast majority of our world goes to bed hungry, doesn't have clean drinking water, and doesn't have shelter. Those are the three primary things that every human being needs. So imagine for a second that there is a world ruler that comes on the scene that actually makes it so hunger goes away because he controls the world's monetary system. He controls every bit of trade. He controls everything that happens in the world's banks and banking institutions. By the way, he also controls religion. So you get rid of the Christians who we happen to believe there's one way and one truth and one life and no one comes to the Father but by him. And so you pull that thinking out And now you have an all-inclusive world religion that's just a homogeny of everything that's ever been thought about God, period, of any kind. And this man says, well, can't we all just get along? And then you make a world power that says everybody has an equal share. So what's our world look like? We're tending towards globalism. We're tending towards socialism. We're tending towards these things that need to be in totality, the world's view for the Antichrist to actually rise. So you can see that the world actually is already drifting towards the time when this ruler would even be accepted. If you were to go backwards in our history, even a hundred years, this type of person would have absolutely no ability to gain power in the world. And before that, it was even worse because there was never a global economy monetary things were controlled by individual countries. A country had its wealth that produced coinage, some type of monetary instrument that was used in that nation alone. It traded with other nations, and there were standards typically in gold and or silver that backed those things up, maybe some type of future. But in our world, we have a global monetary system, amen? You don't believe that. You want to know who we owe about almost three trillion dollars to us in ancient china right now do you think anybody's going to get wheelbarrows full of money and take them to china no it's an it's an electronic transaction when we transfer funds to china and china transfers funds to us they don't exist they're not gold it's just simply a made-up currency now imagine that one person comes on the scene i'm going to equalize this i'm going to wipe out all debt I'm going to make it so everybody's doing great. We're going to get rid of the United States power. 
We're going to get rid of China's power. We're going to get rid of Russia's power. We're going to take the militaries and make them answer to one person so you don't have to worry. That person would be pretty popular today, wouldn't they? Would, would you think that that person might even be viewed as the Savior? The Antichrist. Daniel here calls him the little horn. When we get further into chapter 9, he's going to get some other names. There are those that thought he was this ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And people put this forth because of what he did. Antiochus Epiphanes kicked the Jewish people out of the temple. He actually slaughtered a, a pig created a temple of Zeus in the Jewish temple. And so when the Jews today celebrate Hanukkah, they are not celebrating Christmas. They're celebrating the rededication of the temple because the temple was desecrated under Antiochus Epiphanes. And so the reason that we know this person, because what they called that event was the abomination of desolation or the abomination which makes desolate. And so people took what the word of God said and because that was what the Jewish people considered that to be, the temple was desecrated and it was an abomination. They said, well, it had to be Antiochus Epiphanes. There are some major problems with that thinking. Three major difficulties, if you will. First, Up to this point in time, no one can pinpoint 10 successive kings in history. They haven't existed. They still don't exist. And so that can't possibly be in the distant past. Secondly, Jesus himself announced that after the death of Antiochus Epiphanes, the abomination that causes desolation, Daniel attributes to the little horn, which was still yet future. So it couldn't possibly be because Jesus said, no way could that happen. And thirdly, this kingdom that is the kingdom of this little horn is going to be replaced by Christ's kingdom directly. It's going to go from one to the other. And I can tell you right now, we have still not seen Christ's kingdom fully on this earth. We've seen Christ's kingdom in individual hearts. We've seen Christ's kingdom in individual churches. But we have not seen Christ's kingdom on the entirety of the globe. And in fact, the world today is patently not Christ's kingdom. It's the kingdom of the Antichrist already in that sense, because a vast majority of the world does not believe Jesus Christ is Lord, has no desire whatsoever for godliness. And you can isolate that fact by just simply looking at three nations. If you look at Russia, China, and India, you have almost two-thirds of the world's population in those three countries. And they are patently anti-God. And so Christ's kingdom is still not on earth. But one day it will be. And so when you look at this, it helps to look at what all of these passages actually say. Notice that in our passage, it actually says this, this kingdom is going to be uprooted. And it doesn't mean a, a gradual process. 
It, it isn't successive kingdoms that kind of mosey along through history and then all of a sudden, you know, it's like, well, we finally reached the state to where there's this ruler that comes on the scene. No, the world that's used, the word that's used here, this is going to be plucked up. It's going to happen instantaneously. This guy is going to pop up on the world scene out of nowhere. He's going to be recognized almost instantaneously. It's like in our political process, every once in a while, we'll have one of those people that comes on the scene. You just go, that's a natural born ruler right there. That's somebody who's a real leader. Now, imagine you have somebody do that globally. Begins to solve the world's problems. When you look at the book of Daniel, as we've already seen, we've seen the actual names of several of these kings. And we've either seen the first three uh, in their totality or at least had enough described about them to know that the third one was Alexander the Great, the second one was Cyrus the Mede or the Persian, and the first one was Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So we know who the first three were. We were told directly. We were given enough insight into it. So now you come to this place to where, okay, well, what's this next one like? Well, it's part iron and part clay. It comes out of the Roman Empire. It's, it's mixed in. And it's got to have 10 successive kings and kingdoms. It has to have global rule and global reign. And interestingly enough, while we would look at the Romans as having a fairly barbaric and brutal rule, the fact of the matter is that's not really accurate. The Romans were cruel in some ways, but they also provided fresh water, a road system, the Roman peace, and they were extremely tolerant of almost every religion in the world. Wherever they went, they did not conquer, they assimilated. They allowed people to keep their basic socioeconomic standing. They allowed them to keep their religion. They allowed them to do whatever they want. So you can kind of see if there's going to be a revival of that type of thinking, it has to be a very tolerant government. What's the buzzword that we hear every day? It's tolerance. We need to tolerate everything and everyone. We, we can't stand for anything. If you stand for something, that's the equivalent of saying you don't love them. The Bible says that we're actually supposed to be holy as God is holy, so that means we are going to have to be against things that he's against and for things he's for. And so the Romans come on the scene and they make their state religion, ultimately under Constantine, Christianity. But a version of Christianity that over the centuries went away from the truth of the gospel and towards a religious hierarchy. A religious government, essentially. And so this last world empire that's going to pop onto the scene is an amalgamation of a number of things that we've already seen. And to try and make this simple for you, and I know it's not simple, but I think I can help a little bit. Remember, you can download these from the internet. You just go on our website to the media page, and the slideshows are all there. So you can just download them right to your phone. But remember, in Daniel 2, we had the image that was on the plain of Dura. Gold head, chest silver, iron feet and legs, 
bronze in the center. So there's those four kingdoms. Before those four kingdoms, there were two other kingdoms that were clearly kingdoms with kings, Egypt and Assyria. Those two were already off the scene, so you would not expect for Daniel to write about them. Makes every sense in the world. So when you get to our picture that we're now looking at, these other seven heads and then the final head, so two are gone, that leaves eight more, we can begin to see exactly how the Lord's trying to describe this to us. And so now, if you would kind of keep your finger in Daniel 7, and you can flip over to Revelation 17, I want to put these two passages together with you so you can see what the Lord's trying to say to us. And so here in Daniel 7, and while I was thinking about the horns, there were there before me another horn, a little one, came up from among them, sprouted right up, and the first three of the horns were uprooted, gone. This horn had eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. When we get to next week, beginning in chapter, in verse 23 through 25, it will say this. And because this is another description of the same little horn, the fourth beast is a fourth kingdom. So we're told the fourth beast is a fourth kingdom. It will be different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are the ten kings. So we're now told that the ten horns are ten kings who will come forth from this kingdom. And after them, here it comes, another king will arise. Different from the earlier ones, he will subdue the three kings. Which three kings? Babylon, Media, Persia, and Greece. Rome did that. And he will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints. And they did that. Amen? spoke against God, murdered millions, more than likely, Christians, and try and change, set the times and the laws. They changed the entire legal system of the known world at the time. The Romans came in with their own system of laws, their own system of government. They created the Senate. Our Senate is actually modern, modeled to some degree after the Roman Senate, uh, these, these supposed aged rulers, if you didn't know that, our framers actually thought of this exact process, being as we're going through this whole impeachment thing, that it was believed, in fact, many people do not know, unless you've studied government fairly closely, that the Senate itself was originally supposed to be appointed. It was not supposed to be elected. There were supposed to be appointed sages, people with massive amounts of wisdom because there was a thought in the framers' mind that if you gave all this power to the legislature, the legislature could actually overthrow the two other branches. And, and so there was a thought given to it. We actually owe that whole thought process to Rome. Rome understood that if you gave Caesar unlimited power and there was nothing that anyone could do about it, that Caesar could just run roughshod over the entire world. And so the Roman Senate was... was put into place to, in essence, put a bridle on Caesar, ultimately. And so that fourth kingdom that rose up that's going to rise again, notice what it says. And we'll get to this, and it ties back into verse 8. And the saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, 
and half a time. Again, three and a half years. Now, Revelation chapter 17, verses 8 through 11. The beast which you saw once was and now is not will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. And this calls to mind with wisdom. The seven heads, the seven heads are the seven hills. How many hills are in Rome? Seven. That's the answer in case you don't know it. On which the woman sits. What was on the euro to the two euro coin that was originally from Greece? A woman riding a beast. You know what her name is? Europa. What's the commonality between all of those nations? There's a little bit of Rome in them. And there are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. The other's not yet come. This is John writing in AD 90 in a vision that he saw that the other has not yet come. But when he does come, He must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. And so when you break this down, two are gone. Babylon's in both. Media Persia's in both. Greece is in both. The fourth beast comes, the one who is. Then you have the ancient Roman Empire. You have ancient Rome is the sixth. You have Rome fades, but doesn't completely fade out. Rome just kind of ceased to have relevancy in that sense and still has some relevancy in the world. One will come, but has not yet come. The Roman Empire is revived in Daniel's vision. It's the seventh in the book of Revelation of the Ten Kingdom Confederacy. Ten horns initially, three horns are subdued, leaving seven. The beast who once was and now is not. Finally, one last kingdom, the Antichrist, described in both. And then the one world government that comes from that. And so the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica, and John in his letters are describing this one very specific ruler that has not yet come on the scene. But as surely as the Lord has been correct about everything else that we find prophetically that's already either happened or is going to happen and we just haven't gotten there yet, there's been no mistakes. There hasn't been anything. It's one of the beauties of studying the book of Isaiah kind of simultaneously because we see the messianic portion and we can go, well, the Bible is correct about Messiah. And the Bible speaks about the last days and the end times. And this is what the Bible says about those times. And this last world ruler that's going to come on the scene, then when we start to see those things come to pass, we might want to be looking up towards heaven. Amen? Kind of looking at the world the way we should be seeing it through the lens of Scripture. Notice what it says. Verse 9. 
And now we get a vision from God's throne. And so the picture shifts. The end times symbolized by these toes, partly iron, partly clay. The vision now shifts. We, we know what's coming ahead. And so we don't get dismayed. We're reminded of the central truth that Nick reminded us of this, this morning. There is still a God on heaven's throne and he actually rules. Notice what it says, verse 9. And I watched. Moves from the earth to heaven. When you have a problem, let me give you a little hint. Get your eyes off the earth and put it on heaven. When something's going on in your life and you don't have an answer for it, get your eyes off the problem and put it on heaven. When you want to know who has the answer to whatever is in front of you, I guarantee you, you're going to find a problem someday that there's no answer to on this earth, but there is an answer in heaven. And so Daniel now has his gaze shifted from this one world ruler. And I watched till thrones were put in place. And by the way, this is the greatest description of Father God that we find in the entire Bible. And the Ancient of Days was seated. And his garment was white as snow. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. And his throne was a fiery flame. And his wheels were burning with fire. And so he's just taken immediately from this thing. It's like, man, that just sounds awful. To, but there's a God in heaven. There's a throne in heaven. And the king still sits on that throne. And, and as, you, as you look at these verses... We see actually the Son of Man, who is Jesus, and this Ancient of Days described by the same author, same book, same chapter. And so they're distinguished. As you look at this passage, the the prophet Isaiah uh, reminded us that God himself was the the self-existent creator of all things. That he had a throne in heaven. The book of Revelation paints this picture of this, this throne room that is basically light. When Jesus came to the earth, what did he say? He said, I am the light of the world. Amen? We're told by Isaiah that God dwells in unapproachable light. We know who God is in that sense. We can't see him without being destroyed. His glory, his majesty is so extreme that if we were to see him, uh, we would immediately just be vaporized by, by what we would see. He, he has wisdom, that, that white hair. You know, we, I, I don't know what baldness does, but white hair is, is wisdom. Gray hair. The fire is holiness. That's true in the Psalms. It's, it's true in the book of Exodus as well. Whenever God is described as being just or holy, it's almost with, always with holy fire. It's the reason that inside of the temple... And in the temple courtyard, if you were going to make something holy, what did you do to it? You burned it up. You took away all of the chaff. You got rid of the dross. There was nothing left. Only that which was left as far as God was concerned, which would make it holy before the Lord. And so the Lord's fire burning in this very simple picture of God in heaven sitting on his throne. There's no escape. His eyes, his gaze is on everything. And... I personally believe, and I think there's a reason to believe that, that not only is, are the angels involved in that scene, but also the saints that have gone on before. And so here is, here is this incredible picture uh, of, of, in essence, the judgment that's going to be at God's throne. 
And I want you to see this. And a fiery stream issued and came before, verse 10 says, before him. And thousands of thousands ministered to him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him and the court was seated and the books were opened. What did the apostle Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter five? He said, one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of heaven. Revelation chapter 19 actually gives us a, a picture of another judgment and we'll look at that in a moment. But it says, all the books were opened. And the books were opened and I watched. And then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. If the Antichrist is a picture in some way of the devil because his boss, the beast, makes him that way and he's anti-God and he's speaking pompous words what does the enemy chiefly do against the body of Christ? He is the accuser of the brethren, amen? So we get again a picture of what's happening here. And then I watched because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking, and I watched till the beast was slain, amen? Satan only gets his time for a while. His day's coming. His minions are, are going to have... Uh, their existence confined to the pit one day and his body destroyed and given, given to the burning flame and as for the rest of the beasts they had their dominion taking away, taken away and yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time most people when they read these things they just go I'm confused I'm just going to let it go I'll just take it for what it says and whatever it is it is God's enthroned. He's this great king. He's sitting in judgment before the kingdoms of the world. We're told additional thoughts on this particular passage as well. And I believe this is referring actually to Revelation chapter 20. They're in the first 15 verses. And these books are opened. And people will go, well, what books is that? There's only three. A Lamb's book of life. The book of the deeds of men used at the Bema seat because every word you've ever said, good or bad, everything you've ever done, good or bad, everything that mankind has ever done as a believer, one day God's gonna say, well, that was for me and that was not and they're gonna be weighed in the balances and for those things which are honoring to the Lord, there is a reward. That is a reward seat. The, the Bema seat was a reward seat. It's not a, it's not a seat of judgment. Judgment's already been made. We've been found not guilty in Christ, amen? We, we've been esponged of all of our crimes. Our debt's been paid, it's been wiped out, and a full price was paid for you. You were completely redeemed. You weren't partially redeemed. So you're not gonna get to heaven and go, you know, it kind of looks pretty bad. It looks like you got more bad stuff than good stuff. Sorry, but eh, you're out. But there is a judgment of the unrighteous. In other words, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that is the judgment of only the righteous. People who know the Lord, love the Lord. And then there's the word itself. So we have these three books, these three, in essence, writings that are contained in heaven. 
And I think that this is a reference to that final set of books. In in the New Testament, there are eight references to the book of life. Twice, it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. The names of those who are written in there are always associated with those who are saved. And if you want to flip over to Revelation chapter 3 first, I want to look at a couple of things with you. Because sometimes people are confused, they start making up additional books, and it's kind of like, well, this book is this book, and this book is that book. I think I can prove to you pretty quickly that there's exactly one book you need to be concerned about, and it's called both the Lamb's Book of Life and the Book of Life. But I want, to see, I want you to see something because I think it's really, really important. It solves a huge problem for an awful lot of people. In Revelation 3, verse 5, the book of life is referred to. It's the names of believers. But it has a very, very interesting twist. Notice what it says. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Now, of course, we who know the Lord... That's the description of us in heaven. That's a consistent description of people who've been washed in the blood of the lamb. Our garments are white. We've had Christ's righteousness placed on us. Those are saved people. But notice this. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. And why is that important? Because God says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, and if he loves the entire world, which he does, amen? For God so loved the world, the whole cosmos, every person, not just the elect. If God loves mankind, is another way to look at it, every one of us, God loves Muslims, God loves Hindus, God loves animists, God loves atheists, God loves agnostics. There is no one on this planet God does not love. The Bible, in my view, is very clear on this issue. It's the prime mover. It's the reason God sent Jesus to this world in the first place is because he loves us. Now, if he loves us, and I believe he does, and I think that is incontrovertible, you cannot actually come up with another reason for sending Jesus to the earth if God doesn't love us. If he's just holy, I'm not sending Jesus to this holy mess if God's just holy. If he's just, I'm not sending my own son into this world to die for the world if I just think that they need to be right all the time. But if I love them, that's the reason. Notice what the rest of that verse says. You probably all know it by heart. Not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, if God is not willing, if he's unwilling is another way to look at it. If God is unwilling that anyone ever should perish, which is the content of that verse, whether you like to think about it that way or not, if you try and stick the elect of God in there, you have so many problems with the rest of what the New Testament says about salvation, I can't even begin to describe it to you. But let's just assume that that's correct, that God actually does love the whole world, and his plan has always been to have people come to faith and be saved. Now, I want you to see something. If he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance... What would God be if God never did anything about that to billions of people? Could he possibly love them? 
Could he have ever loved them? Is there any reason for Jesus to have come to this earth at all if Jesus was only going to come for a select group of people we would call believers? It makes no sense whatsoever given what we know about the character and nature of God. So if that's true, we would then have a problem unless you look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. And here's why. Notice what it says. He who overcomes, how do you become an overcomer? By believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's how someone gets saved. What is that? That's a personal choice. Who can make it? Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who recognizes they're a sinner, desires to be saved, and cries out to the Savior can be saved. Now notice what it says. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Now here's what I think that means. I think every last person's name starts out in the book of life. And it has to be blotted out, and the way it's blotted out is you will not receive Christ. And your name is blotted out. And here's what this solves for me. That's how a baby goes to heaven when it doesn't know the Lord. That's how someone who maybe no one ever reached out to them with the gospel somehow the Holy Spirit works in that person's life to convict them of sin and righteousness and they have to make a conscious decision. In other words, that book of life is basically God saying, I love the whole world. Y'all have a chance. All you need to do is believe on my son. That's how Abraham got saved. That's how Isaac got saved. That's how Nebuchadnezzar is gonna be seen in heaven. That's how Cyrus made that profession of faith. Everybody gets a chance. And so the books are opened. So as you open those books, it's basically a roll call in heaven. He's saying, oh, yep, there's Andrew, there's Amy. There's Jeff, there's John, there's Susie, there's Bob. Your name's in there, it hasn't been blotted out. You received grace, you understood the glories of the Lord he said yes to the offer that Christ made from the cross in other words this scene that opens up it's like if your name's in that book you're not at this judgment you're good as I look at this the antichrist name is not going to be found in that book amen the devil's name's not going to be found in that book, amen? So as the books are opened, it's like, eh, you ain't in here. Very important book. And I think one can make the case that the Lamb's Book of Life and the Book of Life ultimately are one book. They're described in two different time periods at this, in these two ways of describing them. That's why the Lamb is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, amen? You couldn't slay the lamb if you didn't know who was going to be saved. So you have to have foreknowledge of that event and you have to have done something about it, otherwise you were unjust and unfair. God would have been horrifically unjust to simply condemn every single human being who never heard what we call the gospel. There had to be some other way. 
Otherwise, God didn't love all those people. He didn't love the whole world. He has never desired for all men to be saved. So this judgment that comes on the scene that we see the beginning of it here in Daniel chapter 7, I believe is actually a reference to Revelation 20, if you want to turn there. It says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose the face of the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and the books were opened. So here they go. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it and death in Hades. Remember as we looked at Luke chapter 16, which we'll look at as we journey through Luke. There's this place that's called the abode of the dead, Sheol, or Hades. Jesus first descended before he ascended. He led captivity out of that, that captive space, this place where this rich man dwelled, and he was in eternal torment, and Lazarus. And he took Lazarus out. He said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Took the thief out. And now all that's left is those that are actually awaiting judgment. That's why the apostle Paul could say to be absent from the body today because of the finished work of Jesus Christ is to be present with the Lord. That's why that can be said now. Before, to be absent from the body was to be present in Sheol waiting for judgment and then jesus said it's finished and he first descended before he ascended and he led everybody who died in faith so now everyone is in the same place whoever has believed on the name of the lord jesus christ they're that heavenly host that daniel describes as the ten thousands of thousands the thousands of thousands those who have believed on the name of the lord And the sea gave up her dead, and death and Hades delivered up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. And notice what it says. And this is why I know this is only those who have not received Christ. This is the second death. You see, here's the good news. If you have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ... You've been born how many times? Twice. If you've not believed, how many times have you been born? Once. So to be born once is to die twice. And to be born twice is to die once. This is the second death. That's the way you can die a death that is infinitely worse than passing out of time and into eternity it's spiritual eternal death that's why jesus said he who believes in me has eternal life and even if he dies yet he she shall live this is the connection there's one more judgment coming and look who gets judged at it The beast, the antichrist, Satan, his minions, 
they're all still roaming around doing their thing, amen? So we know this one hasn't happened yet. And we know it only is for those who don't know the Lord. And so this final world ruler is going to come on the scene, he's going to deceive many. But you don't need to worry about it if your name's written in the book of life. Pretty simple answer to a very complex problem, amen? That's why Hebrews 10 says it's a dreadful thing. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And as the writer of Hebrews writes that, he has one thing in in view, and that's judgment. If you fall into the hands of the living God to be judged, you're in trouble. But you'll never fall into the hands of the living God to be judged if you've already been found innocent in Christ Jesus. You don't have to worry about it because he was judged for us. Christ died for our sins. He took the punishment that we were supposed to have upon himself. He died in our place. So you don't have to fear that great white throne judgment because you're not going to be there for that judgment. It's only those that have rejected whose names are not found in the books, these books that are opened in Daniel, that John sees in Revelation some 700 almost years later. The thing that now draws kind of our our attention is how close are we? How close are we to reaching that place to where this guy may come on the scene? Because there's a functional problem with the world. The world doesn't want to believe. The world loves darkness. The world has not come in mass to the light. And so as the world gets worse, the Redeemer draws closer. As we get closer to the end, things will be as we see them right now. Now, I know because I'm looking around the room, I can see some additional gray hair and or shall we call follically challenged people such as myself. You remember when you used to go to the principal's office for chewing gum? Now it's as long as the gun isn't loaded in your backpack. You remember those days and times when pornography used to come exactly in brown paper wrapped sleeves and they were in the gnarliest liquor stores and the raunchiest parts of your community and they were actually illegal because we had a censorship board in the United States of America that deemed that stuff to be destructive. Now it comes streamed on your cell phone. That's happened in my lifetime. Do you remember, if you haven't gone and seen it yet, if you've seen Midway, you know that the end of the movie Midway ends with this battle. Just within six months, the Second World War is over. Why? Because we dropped two atomic bombs, one on Nagasaki, one on Hiroshima, Japan, and we killed a little over a quarter of a million people with those two bombs. We have bombs that can wipe out millions of people, vaporize them instantaneously now. 
that's happened since the end of the Second World War. We have precision munitions that, that can put uh, a JDAM bomb through your window with somebody in a joystick sitting in a command center in Florida flying a cruise missile right through your window. This has all happened in the last 30 years. We have nuclear ballistic submarines that carry far in excess of 10 times the destructive power of the entirety of every bit of ordnance dropped during the Second World War. We have one submarine that can create more havoc and destruction than all of the Second World War combined. So when somebody tells me that the world is not getting closer to global answers, I just look at them like they have a third eye or a hole in their head. Because the world is so precarious. One crazy, foolish person that doesn't care for their own life or the lives of others has the capacity as our president has He carries around a thing called the nuclear football. It's the launch codes for our ballistic missiles and all of our ballistic missile forces. Has to be authenticated by one other person. The same thing with our launch sites, whether they're in the submarines or in a missile silo in Montana. It takes two keys. And the first key is the president of the United States. He gives that code, that key goes in, his code is put in. The second one is the guy sitting in the silo. Two people could unleash nuclear Armageddon on the face of the earth. And people are running, well, you know, it's not really that big a deal. Oh, it's that big a deal. And God has a solution to it. His name's Jesus. He sent Christ into the world because he knew that towards the end, there's gonna be some crazy stuff go on. So here's my encouragement to you. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen? Just stand with me and we'll pray. We have some pastors up front and maybe you came tonight and you don't know the Lord. And you're like, man, I'm never going to that church again. This guy's crazy. <laughs> Saying all this stuff about the last days and the end. I didn't tell you that to scare you. If you're here tonight and you know the Lord Jesus, I told you to invigorate you to tell people about Jesus. To get busy about our Father's business. To make sure that you don't know anybody who doesn't know Jesus. That's your job. That's your task. He saved us for a purpose. Amen? So, so don't be afraid. Just be ready. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, though these things sometimes are hard to even discuss and talk about, Lord, the world seems such a a tenuous place to even live, and yet we have such great expectant hope because these things are not the end for the child of God. And so, Lord, we we don't want to, to sit here in our comfort knowing that if the worst happens, we're going to heaven and do nothing about our brothers and sisters who don't know you our neighbors who don't know you, our family, Lord, our, our, those in our community on our street, or those that are here with us tonight, maybe came tonight and they don't know you. Lord, they're frightened, they're, they're scared. They look at the world and think, is this all there is to it? And so, Lord, we thank you for the truth of the gospel that you did come, 
And you do desire for all men to be saved, to come to the knowledge of repentance. And so we pray that you'd impress upon, Lord, maybe those tonight who are struggling with their faith. Lord, cause them to to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved even tonight. Lord, maybe they're watching online or they'll look at this video or listen to this message on a podcast. God, I, I pray that no one goes away hopeless. Lord, we have great hope the glorious appearing of our great God and King. Lord Jesus, we know you're coming again. And so help us, Lord, to be busy about your business, to take these things seriously. Lord, to put effort into our lives with you and to serve you all of our days until we see you. Lord, we're gonna see you face to face. We're coming back to this earth and we're gonna see Jesus in person. And so, Lord, we thank you for these truths that we find in your word. Pray that you now light your church on fire and send us out. In Jesus' name, amen.